Welcome back to another episode from the Global Startup Movement. I'm your host, Andrew Berkowitz. With conference season kicked into full gear, I'm heading over to Addis Ababa, Ethiopia in the morning to attend the Africa FinTech Summit, where I'll be sitting down with some fascinating people in the Ethiopian startup ecosystem. We'll be putting out a special hour-long episode at the end of the month with conversations from the event. I really can't wait to get that out to you all. But today I'm recording at PeaceTech Lab with fellow blockchain and crypto evangelist Shaley Adenolfi from Consensus. Consensus is a global blockchain technology company that is building the infrastructure, applications, and practices that enable a decentralized world. Shaley has spent a lot of time doing development work in emerging markets before transitioning into mobile money projects, and then into how blockchain can solve for challenges, including digital identity, security, and remittances. So she has some great stories and some great insights into these markets and into these topics. So I know you'll enjoy my conversation with Shaley. Now let's cue the music and get into it. To the Global Startup Movement podcast, I am joined in studio with Shaley Adenolfi, joining us from the DC office from the organization Consensus, which is one of the prominent organizations in the Ethereum and blockchain ecosystem. Shaley, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Andrew. So why don't we just start off with, with a little bit about Consensus? Like, you know, what, uh, why, why does Consensus exist and, you know, what's, what are some of the goals and uh, the vision of the organization? Sure. So... We were founded in 2015, a little bit after Ethereum was founded. Our CEO is Joseph Lubin. He's a co-founder of Ethereum. And it started as a venture production studio and still has a very uh, entrepreneurial spirit. But what we do is we develop a lot of open source infrastructure, developer tools for the entire ecosystem to use. We actually incubate projects. So we have an accelerator and incubator. We invest in solutions and then we have a small consulting arm. So we we have product companies that we've invested in and a consulting arm that actually does strategic consulting to bring some of these uh, products to bear for specific markets. As we know, the blockchain ecosystem is still growing, uh, still a little bit immature and needs that consulting push to get it over the hurdle. Mm. Okay. I like to say the the hump or crossing the chasm. Yes, yes. And so so your focus is more on the consulting side of things, right? Yes. Okay. I guess we should start off probably with you with your world or with your time in the de- development world because you've had some interesting experiences, interesting projects over the time that have led you to this whole concept of using blockchain for social impact and you know how blockchain can help the developing world. So you started your career with with Commonix, was it or Yes. Okay. So I started with Commonix, was there for well actually before that I did IT consulting for the US government for Accenture, then went to Commonix did USAID-funded projects in economic growth, financial inclusion, trade, some agriculture-related projects, and then moved over to FHI 360, where uh, I also I focused more on mobile money, mobile mobile for development, like content in Africa and South Asia. So when you started working on mobile money and mobile projects, I mean, was that when mobile was first getting kicked off in Africa? Or yes, was, actually. So in 2006, I remember 
and maybe people on the phone remember this, Wizit was popular in South Africa. This was Wizit, before okay. M-Pesa came about, mm. actually, in Kenya. Many people don't know that Diffid was actually a supporter of M-Pesa when it was first launched. That was There was some support at the way, way beginning. Well, of, who's Diffid? I've, Diffid, I've heard of them. Sorry, UKA, the Department oh, okay. for International someone, Development. Yeah, so someone, okay. Yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> someone said that to me a couple weeks ago, and I was like, what is that? Like, yeah. is, isn't that just UKA? I feel like I've seen the UKA logo. It's yes. what they're called, Divid. So I think they've gone back and forth on their logos. Like, okay. they were UKA for a little bit, and I don't know if they're Diffid again or mm. UKA, but. Okay, I didn't. I didn't know they were involved in Pesa. <laughs> like, in ter- in, involved in terms of implementation or like funding. I think they like... funded some of the. F- I, I am not sure. Don't quote me on this, huh. but I assume that there's something written on their involvement at the in the early days. Interesting. Okay, I need, um, I need to look into that. That's yeah. It. So that was 2006, 2007. Uh, I was on a microfinance project funded by USAID in the Philippines, and we were working mm. on mobile money reaching rural areas around cash back for microfinance loans or sending sending money back to the microfinance institutions via mobile money from the microfinance recipients right and so and so has mobile mobile money played out the same in south like the south you know asia pacific area as it has in africa cuz you you've been on the ground yeah you know, so i would say it's different it depends on connectivity on i think also the penetration of credit cards in the Philippines in commercial areas was already taking shape back mm. then. I mean, it was already prevalent. So I think it's different. The ecosystem's different there. There was also Gcash and Smart Money were the big two. Gcash started first, and then there was Smart Money. And Smart Money, I think, is now, in terms of adoption, ahead of Gcash. And I think it... And what markets are... are- is that Philippines? Yeah, in the okay. Philippines. Sorry, that was okay. in the Philippines. Got but um, I would say it's different in Southeast Asia to Africa because depending on how many competitors you have, what the policy environment is, what the e-commerce uh, environment is like, because oftentimes e-commerce is linked to some of the mobile money. Right. And and it helps it take off, mm. like the adoption. Uh yeah, so it has to do with all of that. Yeah, uh, e commerce in Africa is still, I mean, too way, way too early. There's no right. like it, it's not even a, an issue. Uh, well, it is partly an issue of um, different challenges on on internet, but it's mainly infrastructure. Right. Also, addresses. Right. That's still a right, problem. Right. Well, there, there's a company. There's a really cool company in Dubai called Fetcher that uh-huh. basically does is trying to solve that by creating a delivery system that's based on mobile phone location. Okay. Um, and so there, there are there are companies solving that piece of it. Okay. But when it comes to, I mean, you can't entrepreneurs can't solve roads. Right. And so, right. like, until that, like, I don't know, until that gets solved, or <laughs> or until drones can deliver, you know, pretty consistently, which right. which maybe is a big startup opportunity in Africa. Last mile delivery with drones and in, yeah. in, in the big cities. Right. Um, or from city to rural, you know, that just right. That yeah. Trip. But I mean, like, you know, the the way e-commerce is going to have to develop at first, it's going to be focused in the cities, right? Um, you're right, but yes, yes, yes eventually. Yes. But if you're able to figure out that that drone infrastructure in the cities, then that can pretty e- probably pretty easily scale out to the rural <laughs> areas. Um, yeah, will the government let it happen, mm. or governments, I should say? Mm. It's going to be on a country by country basis, yes, I guess. I think so. Yeah, yeah, depends. Yeah. Okay. So, so okay. So your your transition was kind of 
in the develop development developing um, uh, an aid world into mobile money and then into blockchain right. from there. Yes. So I saw this challenge around liquidity management, around traceability of payments, B2B, B2B2C, all the different models, the challenge of interoperability and APIs. I mean, there were a lot of challenges to getting mobile money to scale. And we actually haven't seen too much success there. I mean, M-Pesa was like Safaricom took off and M-Pesa took off because it had the dominant market share and had a lot of support from the government, right? And we've seen that was a success. But but there's maybe four or five countries in Africa where mobile money has really, really taken off, right? What do you think? Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's probably around that. I mean, it's like uh, there's so many, every conference, every Africa business conference is fintech. It's all fintech, fintech, really? fintech. And uh well, the, the issue we, we we have to move beyond M-Pesa as yes. like, as the case study because like <laughs> it's for years now everyone just says like yeah M-Pesa 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 and it's always what they point to as like right. this is the case study of mobile money. It's in an Africa. outlier, but mm, yeah, mm, yeah. That's, that's a I good think, quote. I think groups like Cellulant and some of the other I don't I would love to keep up with what's uh, what's going on with some of these third party aggregator types. Yeah, uh, like Bionic. Uh, and and others because those I thought were trying to solve the issue of interoperability in the payment space um, through the APIs and connecting with the various right so that you could go from phone to from one telco to the other and have yeah. the p- payments but I don't know what I haven't kept up with that but what led me into blockchain was this issue of identity right and so. Um, you know, we, we have the 1.7 billion unbanked, then you have the 1.1 billion without an identity that's legal. Um, and that prevents the KYC from happening. You can't get SIM in certain areas if you don't have the KYC. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's just like a basic barrier to access to any kind of service, not just banking, but like, you know, essential services, even health. So um, I came into the this digital identity started to be a focus of my work a little bit, um, and I learned about India's Aadhaar, and I said, wow, this is amazing that they were able to do this in five years. I think it's a fantastic example for uh, countries globally, but there's one issue. All that data is sitting in one location, and it's a honeypot for hackers, right? Mm. So the other thing is, what if you do, if you in, use national identity in the way that it could be used or should be used to actually deliver uh, services to citizens and use it for KYC and all these other things, then then you're creating a trail of data linked back to that honeypot, and then it becomes a real big security issue. Yeah, that makes um, sense. Also, like, what if the government changes hands? What if the government becomes, you know, some someone that's using it for... Um, profiling of certain groups that's yeah. uh, or an entity that's doing that. So I realized that blockchain, you could have decentralization of the data. So a single source of truth, but no single point of failure. And I found that to be very interesting. Joined a blockchain-based identity startup called BankU in twenty late 2016. Then I joined Consensus over a year ago, and here I am. And I'm still working. Actually, I'm working with a large humanitarian organization that has a blockchain-based platform that's serving 100,000, um, uh, actually, refugees in Jordan right mm. now. 
uh, and they're trying to extend their platform to, and they've been operating since 2017. They're trying to extend their platform globally to a number of humanitarian organizations. So I'm still, I still dabble in the humanitarian space and within, um, you know, Africa and uh, mm. Middle East and South Asia and different yeah. countries. Right. Well, because I mean, the consensus is pretty active in this market, right? Because there's so so many use cases for yeah uh, for for Ethereum there, and so with identity specifically, because that's mm -hmm. where you initially were kind of you know uh, focused in your time and passion in, in the blockchain space. I believe I heard you say that you believe governments have to lead the charge on identity, e even if you're introducing this innovative you know blockchain solution with it. I mean, do you still feel that's the case? It would be nice if I think there has to be an authoritative source behind where your identity yeah, documents that makes, that makes come sense. from, right? So if I present my identity at an airport, they will trust the and they scan it. They they may trust the government that is behind that identity because they know the processes are very secure of that government in actually issuing those types of identities. But if they don't, they will go back and do some double checking. And if, they, if so, so I would say in order for, to, there has to be trust behind those identities. And right now there's a lack of trust in um, platforms such as Facebook that have these social stackable identity mm. Um, layers, right. so to speak, that are being used today for single sign-on and and other mm. use cases. Yeah, well, I mean, it seems. I mean, mo most African countries have not done a great job when it comes to identity. India, on the other hand, has done an amazing, yeah. amazing job. I mean, yeah. I think mo most African countries should be looking at India instead of China as the you know the case study of how they can develop over the next decade. Because um, there's so there's so much more similarities, at least in my opinion, to what's happened in India with with you know. This there's there's kind of three tiers of, of India. There's tier one, tier two, tier, thir tier three. Tier one is kind of like um, similar to the Mexico economy. Tier two yeah. is more similar to the Nigerian economy, uh, and then tier three, which is I mean huge. There's not really a comparable economy in right. Africa, but um, you know I think when it comes to identity, Nigeria specifically is going to have to lead the charge because there's just there's so many people there. Yeah, and it's such a big challenge there that if 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 Nigeria can solve identity. I think all yes. the African countries can solve identity. Yes, and I, I <laughs> I've heard so. I've heard they've tried. I've heard they've well, tried. They, and they've they have been, tried, and there have been have failures. Tried. And yes. I wonder where that's coming from. Mm. Is it? Is it, um, it? Technology is not the only issue, right? It has to come from the implementers on the government side of yes, that technology. Sure. Um, so I, I would like to understand what that was, and also was there a. If technology was involved, and I, I want to say I heard a rumor that there, that one of the big uh, fintech companies, American fintech companies, uh, that issues a lot of credit cards, I won't say who, tried to do digital identity in Nigeria and failed. Mm. And really? so, um, hmm. yeah, we may want to research why that was. I think it was because the business model was too expensive for, to actually for the country to recover costs. Well, so. Whatever they deploy, they it has to be, it has to make sense for that country. Yeah, well, I anticipate that there's one of the one of the reasons that it failed is because there are certain people in power that don't want the true population numbers to come out. Ah, because, that makes sense. Yeah, because you know, 
I, I think more, it's more realistic that Nigeria has a population closer to 150, like between 150 to 180. Wow. Then, oh, well, that, I mean, that's just my opinion, right? Okay. That's just my opinion. But, right. but I, I could, you know, uh, understand why certain people would not want an accurate, uh, you know, identity management system to, to be implemented in the country. Um, yeah. Well, may, maybe do... that's a conspiracy theory, but I, yeah. you know, I have, I have, re- I have, you know, logical reasons why I think that. Well, so I, I, it would be great if Nigeria took the the charge, but I do, I do know that there are some countries in East Africa that are talking to the ID for D team at the World Bank and the Indian um, team that was behind Aadhaar to to get ideas for how to roll it out and to help mm. them develop plans for a national digital identity. And I think the World Bank helped Malawi get that going. So, so. It's happening. Uh, I would say maybe East Africa will be before Nigeria. I would guess. I would guess so. Yeah. 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 But um, okay. So identity. What? What else is is? Or maybe is happen- Ghana. Sorry, that's the mm, other country. Yeah, I think Ghana's. I mean, Ghana's certainly one of one of the best governed, well-run African countries. Um, I actually, I haven't been. I still have not been to Ghana. That's, that's I would like love to go. Top Me of my too. list. Yeah. Top of my list to go to. Yeah. Ghana, Rwanda. I need to hit. At some point, I'll, I'll be in Ethiopia uh, November nineteenth, nice, um, and we'll be doing a live uh, podcast from the Africa FinTech Summit there. I love Ethiopia. I have not been. I actually went to Addis. I, I did a. I went to Lalibela. If you have what's like, Lalibela? It's oh my gosh, you have to go. Like, let's so, talk about at, this after the podcast. That sounds like a concert. <laughs> that sounds like no. A concert. There are these ancient churches that are in dug into the ground and. Mm. People say that like Jesus and the apostles traveled through there and hmm. like, spent time in those churches or, yeah. So, so I don't know the details. I, I can't remember, but I went there in 2008. Check out Lily Bella if you can. Okay, it's a, for sure. It was like a two, a good two day road trip. So. Okay. I mean, the first thing that came to mind, I was like, oh, that sounds, so it's like Lollapalooza maybe for, for, no. for Africa. <laughs> also, there's a restaurant called Lalibela here because mm. there's a big Ethiopian, um, oh yeah. So many, so many Ethiopian you know. restaurants around here. <laughs> it's on in Logan circle. Oh, amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Okay. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll talk offline about that and maybe we'll create some bonus content. Yeah. Uh, but I, I do want to get back to, you know, so, so identity is obviously one use case that's super, super important. And Blockchain introduces, I think, security yeah. and also economies of scale that that makes sense. Yes. But what are some of the other use cases that consensus is or, or you're focused on at consensus right now? Yeah, so uh, we're starting to see a lot of interest in, I would say, trade, trade finance, uh, supply chain. Those are the lower hanging fruit, easier use cases that are taking um, shape now. There are trillion, three trillion dollars of untapped trade from emerging markets, and I think blockchain is going to definitely have a role in bringing finance to those those markets. Um, and so, so we're starting to see some of those things. In terms of uh, how that's being implemented, so we are um, seeing consortia develop so that they can disrupt an entire sector, right? Mm. So in the case of trade finance, we're working um, on a platform called ComGo, and that's with uh, 15 banks and corporates, uh, and it's trade finance commodity exchange, starting with the oil and gas sector. Mm. I think, 
Africa is on the roadmap um, for that platform to eventually, you know, work into. So, so that's exciting. And then, um, but yeah, I, consortia, that's what it's looking like right now. These private permissioned consortia is where things have started, but Mm. as they form and build their knowledge in blockchain, they're starting to see the benefits of permission less and public usage of blockchain. And then we're moving into Ethereum 2.0. So once we have faster transaction times, new business models are going to start emerging. And I think we'll see some Mm. New business New use cases on mainnet that we didn't see before because it was too expensive and too slow to, for people to actually build on. Mm. So, so the killer features that are coming out of 2.0 that's going to allow that is just transaction speed. Is that like the transaction speed, um, proof of stake? Yeah. Okay, got it. And like, what are you seeing like with consensus? I mean, are, a lot of the people that are working with you all is like, and the teams building on Ethereum are they still mainly like the global north, like? US, Canada, Europe, or like, is there a lot of activity in like Africa, like on the ground teams doing stuff? So there are a lot of on the ground teams doing things. We just haven't, we have no idea. Actually, I don't know where the nodes, where the most Ethereum nodes are in Africa. That Mm. would be an interesting Mm. exercise to understand like, like a heat map of Ethereum nodes in Africa. Um, South Africa is definitely, and Kenya. We've seen a lot of movement there. We worked with the South African Reserve Bank and seven commercial banks on uh, kind of reimagining what a real-time gross settlement system could look like. And we did 70,000 transactions within two hours with complete confidentiality on Ethereum. Uh, No, it wasn't. I think it might have been on Quorum. I can't remember. But there's a case study on this um, that's public that people can look up and... Uh, hmm, that's yeah, interesting. so that was good. Hmm. I met the, or maybe I'm thinking of Cora. I met the Cora team when I was in Nigeria, yeah. not the Quorum team. Yeah, but consensus is 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 not doing work in West Africa. Um, but I think I think in terms of land registry all over Africa, there's interest in leveraging blockchain for land registry, and then what comes out of that, like real estate transactions, is the real um, profit making piece to that, right? Right. So. Ghana, there's been some interest at the highest levels on land registry. Mm. Um, I would anticipate that's a roadblock you're going to hit in a lot of countries because there are a lot of people that don't want that transparency. Public. Yes, they don't want right. that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But so, how do we do this in the private sector such that we can just get it done? Right. You know, kind of like TurboTax. The IRS didn't create TurboTax; they just mm. started interoperating with it because so many people were using it right how can mm. we do that for land registry yeah interesting hmm. i mean it's it's, it's going to be the right corporate partners right so right um i think it well so wh- why isn't consensus doing stuff in west africa like is there is there a reason i mean obviously you can't do everything right yeah but- we can't do everything i think we would love to i just i think there we just can't be everywhere but I know Elizabeth Rosiello has been oh. very. Uh, so she was one. She, I think she was episode one of this podcast th- <laughs> oh, three great. years ago. Yeah, great. Yeah. So I just saw her uh, at Money Twenty Twenty. Yeah, I yeah. I saw I saw the live stream of that. Yeah. yeah, she's amazing. Oh my god, we got to get her in studio. She's not in DC that much though. No, 
Yeah, she is amazing. <laughs> yeah. I'm a fan. Oh, I'm a big so fan. So she's doing a lot in West Africa. Okay, and BitPesa just they just rebranded, right? Now yes. they're now they're are they going to be a crypto exchange now? I don't know. Actually, I think I saw I, that. Yeah, um, but okay. I, I know they did I rebrand. Kept up. Um, I, I need to rewatch her. She might have mentioned it in her Money Twenty Twenty. She probably talk. did, and yeah. I was barely. I was literally at Money Twenty Twenty for less than twenty four hours. Okay, got it, got it. Yeah, <laughs> no, I, I know, I know that life. But t- tell us about. So I saw on your website there was a project in I believe it was Van, Van, in the in the South Pacific in the Vantu Vanuatu Vanuatu. Yeah. That's what it was. So we worked with Sempo and Oxfam on a because okay. um, Oxfam does a lot of cash and voucher assistant programs, right? Um, assistance program. So we did some um, disbursements uh, and I have some notes here with me that I brought around that. So there were like 29 vendors that we worked with and, um, you know, there were, I think like approximately 200 recipients. There's a, there's a case study that we wrote on this, but we used DAI, the stable coin based on Ethereum. And, um, and that actually went really well. Mm. Um, the efficiency gains, I think what they really liked was the real-time analytics and transparency of the fund flow. And also um, the customer onboarding experience, not just of the recipients, because they had to go through a four-step process prior to using this new platform. Mm-hmm. But it was also the vendor piece of it, right? The vendors mm. were able to get their cash more easily through the fund like tokenized they would withdraw funding and then cash in their tokens well i was just gonna ask how how do they cash out right yeah i mean they had to cash out through sempo but here's the thing is what's interesting is and you'll see this in the um case study is they had to combat like a high bank transfer fee so they used a super vendor system. They tested it out where one of the larger vendors then distributed to the other smaller vendors mm. to get around that fee. And so how, how many projects does Consensus have going that are, that are like that? Right now? Uh, <laughs> and, well, I, I, not that many because okay. – so we have product companies. When I say not that many, a lot of our work is now trying to get away from the consulting and get more into the, the product. Mm the product's actually um, scaling, right? right so right. so when it, if we do consulting, it's going to be around getting a product off the ground or building out the roadmap of a specific product. Mm. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. So where, where do you think you're, we're at in the next crypto cycle? I, I, th- I, think, I think it's it's basically November 2016 right now. That's what I think. I think the next bull run is going to start to accumulate or – uh, I think Bitcoin's going to start to accumulate over the next few months, and I think 2020 is going to be, I mean, the, the the next one, the next bull run. That's my opinion. that's that's my thoughts. I mean, do you, do you have do you, do you have any hot takes? So <laughs> I don't have any hot takes. Um, I do think that with Facebook, Libra, and China's um, central bank digital currency coming to light. There is much more awareness amongst governments globally and um, and consumers, just day-to-day consumers. And it's not just awareness. It's like, oh, crap, we better do something. But yeah. we need to be mindful about what it is that we do. And we need to make sure it makes sense and doesn't pose a, 
a risk on the financial system, right? So there are some big things happening that we just don't know about, I yeah. think. Oh, for sure, that are, for sure. That, well, that, that's going to actually get us over the chasm, right? It's mm. about getting acceptance and liquidity in the market and that can only come with governments and that's happening right that makes sense. well so i saw so christine lagarde is now uh running the ecb and i saw that they just put out uh in the news that they actually feel a little bit alarmed and threatened by what facebook's doing with with libra and so i think it's going to be libra versus china's currency versus the eu's currency that that that's what i think is going to happen over the next year um, it that you know, if Facebook Libra even launches, mm-hmm. I think it, I think it will. I think what's going to happen is the China the Chinese are going to launch their token before Libra launches, and then the U.S. government is going to flip their script about how how they think about it, and they're going to view Libra as kind of a national asset versus the China central bank coin. Hmm. Um, that's my opinion. Maybe maybe they launch Fed coin from the Federal Reserve or something. You know, <laughs> who knows? I have no idea. But I will say 2019 was the year of stable coins. And did you 2019 know? 2019 was the year of stable coins. So, so, tw- 60, 50 to 60% of stable coins were built off Ethereum somehow mm. or leveraged Ethereum. Nice. So and, that and, was well, great well, for us. And so some of the other plats, like what, like Stellar was probably the other big one or like what? I think so. Stellar. And then there were some new ones, right? There was like baskets yeah. as well. well. Well, yeah. And so, but which begs the question of like, you say stablecoin, but it's only as stable as the asset it's tied to. Right. And so if you believe in the thesis of like, well, you know, fiat currencies are done. Well, if you're, if you're, if you're tying the crypto token to that, that's like, that's not stable in, in that theory, you know, in that view of the world. Right. Um, so who knows? Right. Who knows? I'm, Is the U.S. dollar stable? That that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother episode. That's a whole nother episode. It's not backed do. by gold anymore. So I mean, that's the other thing, yeah, right? Like, yeah. what is? Yeah, that can be a separate conversation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but awesome. Is that anything? Anything you want to sign off with, or anything we didn't cover that you you want to make sure we do? No. No. Thank you for right. having me. This yeah. is great. Yeah. Thanks for being here.